Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris, where we discuss the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture, edited by Jim Harris, and music by Mike Hall. Hey listeners, this is Jim. Welcome to a special edition of the Fanboy and the Hater. Mike is not with me today. Instead, I am being joined by a special guest host, my friend Paige, who recently published a book. Paige, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, I'm Paige. Paige Ewing is my maiden name, and that is the name I write fiction under. And my new book is called Precise Oaths, and it is futuristic fantasy, which makes it Kind of unusual. I never know how to separate genres. I always mix them up. Yeah, genres are always a funny thing. I mean, I'm a big sci-fi fantasy guy, but it's I always found it weird that sci-fi and fantasy were kind of mashed together as a genre. Sometimes they're now separated, and I do tend to favor more the the science fiction side of of the sci-fi fantasy divide. But I have spent quite a lot of time, probably more time, reading books in the fantasy genre, and I get my sci-fi from television and movies. But it's been a while. But I I do have a little bit of a background in and reading some fantasy novels. Like I was a big fan of uh, the Dresden Files and the Iron Druid Chronicles, just to name a couple. But we're here to talk about your book, Precise Oath. So give us a little bit of a rundown of what the book's about. Sure. Actually, I love the Dresden Files also. Jim Butcher is one of the ones that I use to compare. I also use Martha Wells. You love science fiction. Martha Wells did an absolutely brilliant series called The Murderbot Diaries. And her main character is agender and very socially awkward. And when Murderbot came out, Martha is a friend of mine. And I actually told her, I was like, this is the best thing I've read in years. And I thought it was so ironic because that character is actually a whole lot like my main character, Liliana, which is why I use that series of books as a as a comp, you know, to, to kind of say, if you liked that, you might like this because Liliana is awkward. She's very socially awkward. <laughs> she sees with many different kinds of vision. And because of that, she's had to split her mind and she gets sensory overloaded in, in a lot of ways. And so she doesn't think the way that most people do. And it comes off a lot of times like someone who is neurodivergent. Uh, in fact, I had a beta reader who read an early version of the book and his uh, son is on the spectrum. And he looked at this and he read like two pages of it and went, oh, she's an Aspie. <laughs> And I thought I thought it was funny. It's like she's she's different the way she thinks. And in doing so, it kind of makes her a lot like a lot of other folks who think differently. So that that worked out interesting. Yeah, I really love Liliana. I I had the opportunity to read a pre-release version of the book. When this ep this episode's going to be coming out in early July, the book actually just published right around the time that we're actually recording this episode. When did the book actually get officially published? It just launched 2 days ago, June 13th, 
And actually, there's a really cool fresh fiction blog up today on it's a conversation in character. So it's Liliana getting interviewed. And that actually is pretty fun, too. So I, I had a lot of fun writing that. Well, definitely include a link to that in the show notes because I, I was a huge fan of the book and, and the, the central character was probably the biggest draw for me. She is a spiderkin. As regular listeners will know, my favorite character in pop culture is Spider-Man. Yes. And I, I, I actually had some difficulty because I wanted her to be a spiderkin, but I didn't want her to be a Spider-Man copy. You know, so she had to have some similar capabilities like um, super agility and the ability to create webbing and things like that. I even put her her web generators in her wrists. So that that meant, you know, she's she's similar powers to Spider-Man, but she's not Spider-Man. So how do you make sure that she is her own person and her own kind of creature? That was a little bit of a challenge, actually, because I am also a Spider-Man fan. Well, you succeeded because I, I didn't. I wasn't thinking of Spider-Man or, or anyone from the Spider-Verse, but I, I immediately found the character interesting because of that connection. But also, I was. I mean, I have some familiarity with with some of the paranormal or fae story tropes and character tropes. Although you've taken them in a, in a much more interesting and, and, and unique direction, and and I found Liliana just fascinating. The idea of of the Spider-Kin. And she has like multiple sets of eyes that can see the future, can see into like your soul to tell if you're telling the truth. How, how, how does her, her powers work? Yeah, she has she has eight eyes because she's Spiderkin, and her first two are just normal human eyes. The second two are on her temples, and they they can see in 360 degrees, so she can't be snuck up on. And they see in different spectrums from normal human eyes. So she can see with infrared vision or ultraviolet vision, that kind of thing. It gives her a very nice night vision and, and that kind of capability. And then her third eyes are the ones you, you, you mentioned that see uh, a person's aura or soul. It can see, you know, kind of flashes of what they're thinking and get a good idea of what they feel. And, and yes, and she can absolutely tell when people are lying. And then the uh, fourth eyes are the ones that she makes her living as a fortune teller using because they can see other times and other places. And they are also the most challenging for her because other times and other places invading your brain <laughs> randomly can really mess with your head. So they're the ones that she has to try to keep under control and keep from messing her up. I mean, there's, there's a lot of times where that much vision is overload. It's too much. It's more than you want to see. And trying to turn them off a lot of times is her challenge. And I think that plays into, like you had mentioned, she has sort of a, a neurodivergent personality. She has difficulty socializing and fitting in, in part because of her abilities are so overwhelming. She sees and feels too much. And when she's around too many people, it just overloads her. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. And I, I had a lot of fun doing that as I think in part because I identify, I think almost everyone identifies with that social awkwardness. Sometimes it's just hard sometimes to to be around other people and figure out what you're supposed to do. Where do I put my hands? Why? <laughs> when am I supposed to look at somebody and when am I not supposed to look at somebody? It's like all of that stuff that to a certain extent we eventually become instinctively doing. It's like if that's not instinctive, then oh my God, it's hard. 
And I think almost everybody has had that moment when, or a fair amount of your life, when you feel like you're just the odd man out and you don't quite fit. Yeah, I, I found that incredibly endearing for many reasons. But like, I'm one of the groups that I'm I occasionally hang out with is a, a board gaming group that calls themselves the Social Introverts. Yes, and they basically are a group of people who are naturally very introverted, who don't really know how to socialize well, but like to get together and play board games. And when you put us around a board game, when the rules are clearly laid out, it helps. This is how you play the game, and this is what is allowed and not allowed, and what here's the right way to play. It provides a way for people to be social, but if someone gets up from the table and like walks over to get a snack, it's funny to watch people try to actually like have a non-board game conversation because they almost don't know how to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally relate. And I, I actually put that in the book. It's like, you know, when she's sitting in around her table with the with the crystal ball in the middle and playing that part of now I'm the seer, she just gets relaxed and confident. It's like, I know how to do this. I know what the rules are. I know how this works. Then when she goes off, there's actually a the blurb on the back is like, oh, you know, she's got to keep the person, keep the main character, the other main character from executing her for a murder she didn't commit. And she's got to find the real killers and keep them from killing him because she, he's now her friend and she's got to do this and she's got to do that. And it ends with she might even have to socialize. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the most terrifying thing <laughs> beyond all the rest. That's the scariest part for her. Yeah, there are interesting scenes in the book. No spoilers. We're not going to do any spoilers. We want you to read the book. There are excellent scenes in the book where she has to go into like combat. Like There are scenes where she actually has to fight. And some of those scenes are quite challenging for her. But somewhat entertainingly, some of the even more challenging scenes for her is just to have to walk into a room full of people. Yes. <laughs> she's like, yeah, no. <laughs> Not because she's going to go fight them, but just like walk into a room full of people and do normal socializing things is almost more overwhelming to her than a combat scenario. Absolutely. There is a line, I'm not sure if it's in this book or in one of the sequels, but it's she says something about, well, I just have to talk to this guy and convince him of this thing. And then she's like, it would be so much easier if I just had to kill somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so the setting for the book is the near future. So it's kind of a little bit of a science fiction backdrop. So it is the, the near future. And the other thing that's interesting, too, in terms of, and we'll come back to your world building in, in a minute, you introduce us pretty much immediately to there are normals and others, right? Are those the right terms? Yes. So a normal is just like us. It's just a regular person. And then an other is either a beastkin. So somebody who, you know, somebody who's similar to a wolf is, uh, is a wolfkin or a werewolf. And they have three forms. They can be a wolf, they can be a person, or they can be a, a sort of a demi-wolf, you know, a wolf man, somewhere in between. So all of your beasts can have those three forms. And the other option is the fae. And the fae also have three forms. They are all akin either to a vegetable or a mineral. So we have animal, vegetable, and mineral. <laughs> <laughs> but the fae are always, they're either akin to like a plant, 
like an oak tree or to a particular type of stone like flint or obsidian or granite or something along those lines. And those people can either be a tree or they can be a person or they can be a demi-tree. That's sort of like a Tolkien version of an Ent was sort of like a demi-tree. And that's that's pretty much the way everybody is. And everybody's got those three forms and how they use them is always interesting. That was kind of my world building as far as the, the people. But there's a good reason why it's actually set in the future. A lot of people are like, well, you didn't do much with that future setting. And it's like the whole world building is based on the fact that it's the future. It has to be the future. Well, one of the reasons I mentioned that in part is because I won't name names, but I have read some authors' books that they spend so much time on world building, they kind of forget the characters and the story because <laughs> they really feel like, oh, you okay, you got to know the rules. Let, let me explain. <laughs> let me take 250 pages to explain <laughs> to you in excruciating detail the world <laughs> and how it works and all this stuff. Uh, and instead, you take the perspective, you throw us right into the story, you give us enough to know what's going on, and we learn a little bit more as we go. And even as I was reading it, I was like, I was wondering about this. And then like a couple of pages later, you bring it up. So you don't like inundate us with all this thing. It's like, here's a homework assignment. You have to understand <laughs> Faye and Beastkin and Spiderkin and all this. Like, nope, you're pulled into a character-driven story right away. Let me make you learn how to speak Elvish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I have to say that there is a lot of motivation in every writer to explain everything. <laughs> because in your own head, you have built this beautiful, complicated interconnected world and you just want to tell everybody about it so i had to i have to say this book has been rewritten multiple times and the number one thing that i edited out the most was info dumps where you just here let me explain everything and i'm like every time i caught myself doing that i was like take that out take that out okay you need like one sentence of that <laughs> it's like get that out get that out but I think the one thing that I, I really kind of wanted was that the intertwining between the future history of there's this like home punk aspect of it, which, you know, I don't even know if you know that's a genre now. Solar punk and hope punk. I did not know that. There are subgenres that basically foresee a future that is good, where either technology or something has solved our climate problems. And the world is green again and, you know, and we have clean air and clean water and, and there's some reason why it has. And solar punk is all about, you know, we did that with solar energy. And in this case, I, I suppose it's sort of a solar punk world because all the cars are solar and a lot of the, a lot of the power that you, you hear about in there is solar. But the main idea is we clean up the world. Well, all of the creatures that are dependent on that green world for their magic are now becoming more and more powerful and more and more prominent in the world. That was kind of the basic concept behind the whole world. And it was it was a little hard to like not tell everybody that at the beginning because that's boring. <laughs> It's like you, you want the story first and the world building to just be where the world is and how the world is. And, and you know, and it's there's a there's a marvelous story by David Weber 
forgotten what the name of it is. Something like how David Weber orders a pizza. It's hilarious because it's the biggest info dump. You have to learn where did telephones come from? What is what is the history of pizza? It's like it's like how to how to info dump way too much. So you can see how ridiculous it is when you when you over explain everything. It's like you just don't have to do that. Well, I think it's one of those things that uh, some authors trip up with that. It's like world building does interest me, but I have to get interested in the characters in the story first. Most of it's character driven for me. If I find the characters interesting, I want to read any story that they're in. And then I do want to learn more about the world gradually and see it expand. I just don't want to have all of that poured on me at front. But also, I think sometimes, too, when you're reading some things in this genre, I was like, oh, they're a fae. I know how fae work. Oh, wait a minute. This isn't exactly how I've read fae about before. Oh, werewolves. Everyone has werewolves. Oh, this is a little bit different. Yeah. So it was it was nice to not see repeated tropes and to, to see things that I was familiar with some of the elements, but a, a fresh spin, pun intended, was put on them. But I also think it's important that if some people who are listening is like, oh, if I'm not a, if I'm not into the fantasy genre, this isn't for me. I would say absolutely not. It's like you don't need to be into the fantasy genre. I think that anyone who just who likes interesting characters and interesting story can be drawn to this. I, I kind of use it as maybe a bad example would be in the geek culture that we live in now. Superhero movies are a big thing, and it used to be a time where like superhero stuff was uncool uncool or or childish or somehow like even the the current ongoing debates about why like superhero movies with very relatively rare exceptions don't get award recognition or even nominations because they're not considered serious films and it's like all a superhero movie is is an action movie with superpowers right it's not really all that different between superman and a cop or a soldier it's a person in a situation, yes, in the case of the superhero genre, their abilities are not stuff that people have in the everyday world, but it's still driven by a character, and it's still the same type of thing. So the same thing here is like, yeah, you're going to encounter fantasy elements that you might not have normally read, but it's not going to overwhelm you. You're still going to be reading an interesting story. Liliana's a superhero. She has superpowers. <laughs> But she's not Spider-Man. <laughs> but she's not Spider-Man or Spider-Woman or, or anyone in the Spider-Verse. But my whole point is that superhero movies may have helped with this. It's like, I, I think now it's much more accepting to people. It's like, tell me a good story written around a good character and, and I'll go with it. Yeah, I have to say one of my favorite Marvel movies is the first Captain America. And it was essentially a World War II movie. Right. Of which, you know, I practically saw a million of when I was a kid. And it was a World War II movie with a guy who had superpowers. <laughs> and that was, that was pretty much, that was what it was. And I actually started out, I mean, a few years back, the first couple of books I published were superhero books. Uh, I wrote a novel that was supposed to be the first in a series and unfortunately didn't sell that well. And I wrote a, uh, I, I edited an anthology of a bunch of different really fabulous authors wrote superhero stories in my world that I invented. Awesome. And that Marshall Moraska uh, had a story in there and he's, I don't know, he's written like 20 books for Daw now. And uh, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, well, I don't know if you, you saw the Who Wants to Be a Superhero show with Stan Lee. Oh, yeah. I saw a few episodes of that. 
<laughs> Jarrett Crippen, who was the diffuser and won season two, is a friend of mine, and he wrote a story in there too. He actually he told me he's he's a wonderful storyteller, and I knew that. But he says he can't write for crap. <laughs> Being a little more polite than he was at the time. <laughs> And uh, and I said, okay, tell me the best story that you have from being a cop for 20 years in Austin. And what's what's the weirdest thing that ever happened to you? And he told me this story and I wrote it down and fictionalized maybe 10% of it. And it became a story. Puke man is what it's called in the in the book. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess I, I'm going to have to go back and put those back in print. But honestly, at that time, I was learning so many things about books and about how they come about and things like that. And I worked my tail off creating those two books. And then I was just exhausted. And what I did not ever learn about was how to market a book. <laughs> <laughs> so these lovely, absolutely amazing books went out there and absolutely no one knew that they existed. So I may, I sold maybe 300 copies of each book and didn't even begin to make back as much money as I spent to produce them. And that was very sad. And I think at some point I'll go back and probably, and my agent is actually already talking about possibly marketing the stories as graphic novels eventually. So we'll see. We'll see. Maybe they'll see light uh, again now that I'm a little more savvy. But ironically, at the time, that led to me creating Liliana because I was exhausted. I was fed up with writing commercial stuff, but because I'm me, I couldn't like not write anything that would have just been like, here, let me just not breathe for about three months. <laughs> I just, I don't know how to do that. So um, I decided, well, I'm just going to write fluffy fanfic. I'm going to write something for fun that no one will ever buy. That's not anything even vaguely commercial. It's just for the joy of it. And I loved the Grimm TV show. Oh, I love that show. Wasn't it great? I loved that show, but the but the problem with it was there were plot holes you could drive a truck through. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> so is is Liliana a fanfic for Grimm? Kind of, uh, actually, way back in the day. So I had this. I I loved Grimm, but I hated the fact that there were big holes in the plot. Like the the Grimm went from bumbling to Banff, as somebody put it. It's like from from a guy who doesn't know how to fight to a guy who's this super awesome fighter in like two episodes. And just instantly, with no training, he's suddenly really good. I basically invented Liliana as a character who was like slightly off screen. And she did things like train the Grimm so that he could go from really bad at fighting to really good at fighting. So I, I filled in the plot holes <laughs> by creating a, uh, something that happened off screen. And everybody who read the fanfic, and this was really weird for fanfic because most people read fanfic because they love the characters, they love the story, and they just want more of what they see on screen. They want to see more of that. And the Liliana was completely my own creation. She was what they call an original character. I completely made her up. And everyone loved Liliana. All the feedback that I got on the on the fanfic pages was all, oh my God, I love this character. Write more about her. She became so popular. And I wrote, I wrote, I don't know, five, six stories, I guess. And by the third story, I was making all of it up. It had nothing to do with the show. 
<laughs> and it was entirely Liliana going off on her own adventures. I even got encouragement. I acknowledged a couple of the folks from the old fanfic who really just strongly encouraged me to take Liliana, give her her own world, give her her own story, take that character and put her in her own world instead of using someone else's. So my vacation from writing became my obsession for the next three, four years, I guess. I rewrote Liliana and her story three, four, five times. <laughs> and each time further and further away from the grim world because there's there's it's really hard sometimes to to take the the character and completely make her completely give her her own world. So all that world building that I did I had to do to make sure that it was nothing like the grim world. It had to be its own world, its own characters, its own adventure. And the only thing that didn't change over the years was Liliana. She pretty much is still Liliana. I made her fit the uh, the world building, but to a large extent, I, I built the world building around Liliana so that she could be herself and not change. Well, that makes perfect sense to me because, again, that, that shows the strength of the character, how incredible of a character Liliana is, that she could go through that evolution, stay relatively intact. And have an entire world evolve around her because she is so unlike any other characters I've encountered. Again, I haven't read extensively in the genre or, or its related subgenres, but I found her to be a wonderfully unique and authentic and original character. And it immediately made me think as I was reading the book, it's like, I don't even care where the story goes. I just want to follow this character. Yeah, she's awesome. I felt the same way when I read Martha Wells' All Conditions Red, I think, Conditions Red, something like that, the very first Murderbot Diary, because her, her Murderbot character is a science fiction version of that same kind of unique and really fun and really different, socially awkward, introverted character. And you, you think that so many of the heroes are, I must go out and save the world, you know, and they're totally that kind of person. And having a hero just be, you know, why don't you just leave me alone and let me watch TV? Because I like this better than people. <laughs> and that that is just a very different kind of hero. And I, I think that showing that even folks that don't really want to be around all the other people can still be heroes is kind of special in itself. I think it's an important message. And I think it's, again, one of those things that in general... One of my favorite things to pick on in this podcast is DC Cinematic Universe. Ah, Well, that and actually the X-Man universe, because I'll, I'll throw Marvel under the bus as well. <laughs> One of my greatest disappointments that we've mentioned on the podcast many times is how incredibly, with very few exceptions, how incredibly terrible the X-Men have been in movies that have been made. And it's so disappointing to people like me and my co-host on this podcast, who's much more into comic books than I am, the source material, the comic books and the animated series have characters that have depth and personality to them and rich texture. And in a lot of the X-Men movies, it was just a personification of a superpower. Yeah. This is telekinesis. If it was a person, it's all about the power. And it's like, where's the person? Where's the character? Where's the relatable thing? Not the, here's a person who shoots laser beams out of his eyes. Like, yeah, but what's the person? Yeah. That gets lost, I think, in a lot of fictional materials like that. Where there's, there's a, obviously, there is a supernatural essence to Liliana. 
But that's not the only thing that you notice about her. In fact, that's probably not even the first thing, thing that draws you to her in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's deeply sad that a medium that is so limited like comic books where you can only you only have a few pages to establish who somebody is and things like that. And yet they did such a so much better job of it than something where, you know, you had a really good actor and you had visual, you know, and you had you had so much more opportunity to give life to these characters. And yet the guys in the comic books did it better. Well, that's my opinion as well. I have to agree with that. <laughs> yeah, and that's like even like not to take a comic tangent, but like the, the DC universe annoys me so much. It's like I'm a big fan and my co-host is a big fan of the DC animated movies. The the Batman. Oh, my God. The series. The animated series was so good. I'm a big fan of the Bat family. Like, I'm sick and tired of Batman. <laughs> there are so many <laughs> more interesting characters in the Batverse than just Batman. And like a one hour animated movie has better writing and better storytelling than these two hour multi-million dollar blockbuster live action movies. It's like, this is so terrible. It's like, if you literally just like remade one of the animated movies as live action, it would it be would awesome. It would be better. Yes, it would be better. Yes, I, I get it. At the very least, it would be better. I totally agree. Look at some of the Spider-Verse the beautiful Miles Morales. Oh, yes. Oh, I love the animated Spider-Verse stuff. And it's so much richer. Oh, yeah. In many ways than the live action Spider-Man stuff. Although I, I really liked the last one where they brought all three of the main, you know, Spider-Man actors into a single movie and kind of made all of the Spider-Man movies canon. I, I got a kick out of that. <laughs> yes, that was Spider-Man No Way Home. I really did enjoy that for the for the fan service. Uh, yes. I did enjoy it, and especially also because Spider-Man is my favorite character. I wasn't a huge fan of all of the individual. We have a whole podcast episode about that people can listen to. We also did an episode on Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, that was so good. Which we thought was amazing. I just saw the sequel. Yeah, and we just we just saw the second one and what has now been revealed, not much of a spoiler, that it's basically going to be a trilogy because there's going to be a third movie because there's, there's such a big story and there's such fully formed characters Again, if you're invested in the characters, if you read the comic books, you would know that there's a lot of weird variety in the Spider-Verse that people might yeah. not have been aware of, which is beautifully brought to life in the Spider-Verse movies, where we haven't seen as much of that variety in live action, although in, in fairness, it's probably a lot easier. It's a lot easier to do in animation. Yeah, I, gotta, I, I have to say, though, now you have suggested that Liliana is the spider person in her universe, and I have just made that into my brain canon from now on. <laughs> Why not? She is the spider person in her universe, and I kind of like that idea. <laughs> but I, I'm sorry, I took us on a little bit of a, a comic book tangent there. No, no, that's cool. I, I am I am a total geek about that sort of thing. I run a geek trivia game on my Twitter handle for page viewing, and I love just all the pop culture. So back to the book. We were on those, the evolution of Liliana from fanfic to her own character in her own right. How long was the journey to the book that just got published? Truthfully, it was like 10 years, maybe wow. a little more. And that's partially because I wrote other stuff. <laughs> There's actually my agent is shopping around another series that I wrote during that time. And I wrote I wrote multiple things during that time. So I sold a couple of short stories. I've got an AI short story right now being considered 
There's an anthology that's about to come out called Crack in the Code. As far as Liliana, the very last step, I think, when she was really almost complete and I was polishing her at the very last bit of it just before she went to publication, I got some help from a really brilliant writer, Angela Knight. She writes very high heat level paranormal romance which I like her stuff and I have read a lot of it. She's published like 50 or 60 novels and New York Times bestselling. She's a brilliant writer. And she was teaching a class at Savvy Authors and I took the class. I'd taken several classes over the years there. It's really a, a nice place to learn. But she did something that most teachers don't do. She said, hey, if you have a section of your work in progress that you would like some feedback on, send it to me and I'll have a look. And I sent her some chunks of Liliana that I was struggling with, pieces that I that I needed a little help with, and she gave me some feedback. And it was priceless feedback, one. And two, she read the sections and went, oh my God, I love this. I love this character. I love this story. When you get it finished, I will absolutely give you a praise quote. And so my my book, Precise Oats, right on the cover, it has a, a, a lovely praise quote from Angela Knight. She really enjoyed the story and really, I think, helped polish it at the end. That was incredibly nice of her, and I appreciate it. Well, that's awesome. I mean, it's not surprising to me. I mean, we know each other personally and professionally, so I, I always knew you as a good writer. It didn't surprise me at all to to learn of your more extensive background in the publishing world, and it comes across that you are an incredibly great writer. Like, you know how to write. It's a, an incredibly well-written story. It is very well-paced. You know how to handle things like dialogue and action scenes. It has a professional polish to it. You're going to make me blush here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't surprise me because not only knowing you personally, but also it doesn't surprise me from hearing that story that is about a decade in the making. It was influenced by all of the other writing that you have done. And you've been working on your craft for such a long time. You're not just a, hey, first time published author. I thought I'd give this book thing a try. <laughs> this has been in your blood for a long time. Yeah, I've been I've been writing. I started writing my first novel when I was 12. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. A lot of people don't know this, but I lived out in the country in a tent for a long time. And no electricity, no running water. But I filled notebooks. Wow. I could not stop writing even when I didn't have anything to write on but pen and paper. In fact, that was the time when I started keeping no pens except those that are waterproof because <laughs> at least once the tent leaked and like got one of my notebooks wet and like I lost like a month of writing. It was like, ah, I've had uh, hard drives crash on me and lose writing and it just, oh, that's the worst. That is the worst thing. So now I'm really, really careful about backing up everything on the cloud and stuff like that. I didn't really know that background about the, the tent thing, but I think the other thing that speaks to it, there's a level of authenticity to the characters and to some of the scenes, which I think the background that you just described helps fill in some of that for me. And the other thing that I know that I think you do talk about on like your author page, you also, you know how to throw weapons. You know how to yes, shoot I arrows do. and throw axes. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I've studied martial arts of various types since I was about 16. And I used to sword fight in my younger days. And I nowadays, I mostly shoot arrows or throw axes and spears and stuff at people and things. And my husband and I are building a ballista which is essentially a, a giant crossbow that was used in medieval times like artillery, essentially. We're building one that's intended to actually shoot at humans. Is this a home security system? <laughs> no, it'll shoot special spears that have like a tennis ball or whatever on the end so that they can hit people who are wearing armor and they will know that they have been hit and they will fall down and die. But they will not actually die. <laughs> that, is, that is the goal. They can still go have drinks with your friends afterward, after you have shot them a couple of times. Is this like for like live action role playing? Yeah, it, well, the SEA folks get really mad if you call it that. But yes, that is exactly <laughs> what it is. The Society for Creative Anachronisms, and I've been in for about 40 years doing things like that. So I, I love doing all that crazy stuff. I am a geek in so many different ways that it's not even funny. Well, it must also help with authenticity of your fight scenes when you're writing them. Because I think some writers, especially nowadays, I'll, I'll admit, I read a lot less than I used to because I've just gotten lazy and watch a lot of movies and television shows. Although I endless, like regular listeners, listeners of this podcast know that I endlessly complain about the bad storytelling <laughs> in movies and TV shows. But one of the hardest things I think to do well in writing is something that typically is easier to do, although it could be choreographed poorly, but it's usually easier to do in a visual medium is a fight scene. Yes. You can watch it. You can see it. And something that might be like a one minute scene in a movie or a TV show. Could be pages. In a book. And can sometimes for some writers be some of the hardest things to write. It is. It's a challenge. There's actually... There's sections of the uh, of the fight scenes with Liliana that I had to act out with friends of mine to get them to to, to make sure that they they could happen, that they were realistic and stuff like that. But a lot of writers, believe it or not, are good martial artists. Nancy Jane Moore also gave me a really nice praise in the front of my book of Precise Oaths, and um, she's a fifth dawn Aikido master. And the thing is, it's like you know we're we're middle aged women. <laughs> You don't look at a middle-aged tubby woman who spends too much time typing instead of exercising and go, oh, that person is a fifth on master Aikido person. And it's like, yeah, we are. <laughs> like, I'm not, but Nancy is. And I think you forget that, you know, us older women have been around for a while. We've been, we've been doing all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> I've belly danced for a fair amount of my life. Once upon a time, I could dance with a, with a cup of water balanced on the top of my head. And it's just not something you look at me and go, oh, look, she could do that. <laughs> I think that the, the richness of personal experience, I think, definitely helps for anyone who's a writer, I think, has has interesting stories about themselves because they've led interesting lives, which must make it easier to fictionalize stuff for people. I love reading writer bios because they're usually things like, oh yeah, I was a bartender and a construction worker and I wrote code and then I did this. You know, it's like, they're almost always the kind of people who have done a little bit of freaking everything. And it really does help a lot when you're writing to have had that experience to draw on. One of the reasons Liliana is neurodivergent is because I identify really well with that. 
I'm ADHD as much as I could possibly be. But that whole neurodivergence thing is just is just me. It's it's definitely something I understand and identify with. I also put a lot of um, different things that are in my life. My foster brother was gay. My daughter is bi. I'm poly by nature. So you've got all of these kind of, it's like everybody isn't the same and everybody has different life experiences. And I try to make sure that the world, I think it's one of the reasons my world feels so authentic is because the people in it are different. They are just as unique as real humans. (laughs) People are unique and characters should be unique. I really love the diversity of the characters in there in terms of we're not dealing with heteronormative standards. We're not dealing with gender normative standards. It's more encompassing and embracing. And I think that that's another wonderful aspect of the story. I love when things like that are done realistic because one of the things that kind of irritates me is a little bit of a sort of like fake inclusion that happens in some mainstream stuff. Again, much more so with television. They start looking like stock photos where everybody is like representing some particular ethnic or age or something. And it's like almost like, you know, you have to have a person from each ethnic group and a person from each gender and a, you know it's like ah that's ridiculous it's like this is this is just reality or or even just like things like people who try to get some shows or movies who try to get some gay cred by having one of the characters be a lesbian it's like that's just lazy to me it's like because a lesbian is also a heterosexual male fantasy i'm more impressed when they make a man gay in a movie or a tv show because that's a little bit more challenging to a heteronormative standard. Either way, I just like it when they just are people. Yes, exactly. And then, you know, it's like, oh, they have brown hair and they're a lesbian. You know, it's it's just part of who they are. It's not, it's like, it's part of, part of the variety of humanity as opposed to, you know, oh, look, I have a lesbian in my show. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's just like, oh, yeah, that's a guy and, you know, and he's this and there's this other person over here and they're trans. My niece is trans. It's like I, I don't live in a world where everybody is white and hetero and gender the same and all of that. And it's like, I don't want to write that world either. And it's actually it's something that I, I really thought about when I wrote this, because, of course, originally it was a grim fanfic and everybody almost there was like one black guy in the whole story and everybody was straight. And it was just, it was, that was the way it was. And even when I first rewrote her in her own world, everyone was white, everyone was straight, everybody, you know, the men were, you know, in the the cops and soldiers and stuff, but women were the cops and soldiers' wives. (laughs) There were the teachers and the, the nurses and the homemakers and all that. And I was just like, what am I doing? It's like, I don't live in that world. Why am I writing that world? And I think there's a lot of training that we get at a young age, I don't know about you, but any science fiction and fantasy person growing up when we grew up was reading Tolkien and Asimov and, you know, all those kind of guys. And they were brilliant writers, but they were all writing white dudes. <laughs> and it was, it, it sunk into my brain enough that I realized my first drafts were that way. And I just went, yeah, no, this isn't the world I live in. I don't, I don't want this fake sort of whitewashed world. So that's why I think I went and just played around a lot with that. And in fact, I mean, Pete is one of my main characters and he's gay in the book. 
Well, when I first drafted it, he was straight. And you know what I changed in order to make him gay? The gender of his significant other. And that was it. It's like, this is the same person. It's like being gay doesn't magically not make you a hero or not make you attractive or not make you smart or not make you, he's like everything that he was, he still was. It's just now he's, he's interested in boys. He's a human in love with another human. That is the important thing. And that was what I, I strove for with all of it. It's like they're people first and the characteristics are just that. They're characteristics. I mean, I've got one character who is kind of made, you know, from New York and she's Italian. And so I, about all that informs is, you know, she kind of speaks, occasionally. she says like, forget about it. And it's just, you know, <laughs> things like that. It's like, you know, I made one character from New Orleans and, you know, she says, oh, you, you'll cry to your mama if this bothers you or something like that. Or where yet? I think she uses in, in, in one book. And I, I used to have a friend who was from New Orleans. He said that a lot. It's like a thing that you say, if you're from New Orleans, you say, where you at? And, and ironically, it doesn't mean, where are you? It means, how you doing? And I had to, I had to learn that. I was like, um, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> but that's the world I live in. So that's the world I write about. Well, that's fantastic. So this episode will probably go live the first week of July. We recorded this two days after the book's actual publication, which was on June 13th. So where can people go to find your book, Paige? Everywhere. <laughs> I looked at the Fresh Fiction blog where they did my conversation where Liliana basically gets interviewed, but at the end, it had buy links. And it had Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Kobo and all kinds of things that I had never even heard of. You can click every link and go buy Precise Oaths. <laughs> so anywhere books are, <laughs> that is where you can get it, at least online. And, there is, and there's a paper version too. So I know a friend of mine runs the library in Copper's Cove, and he's got copies of my books sitting on his shelf, and he's got me doing an author event next month. So even maybe in your local library, who knows? And if not, tell them you need one, and they will go and get it. Does the book, or do you as an author have your own website? I do, pageewing.com. Awesome. And pageewing.com has got a special page just for the Liliana books, because like I said, I have a couple of other series in the works. Awesome. We'll definitely include links to all of that in the show notes and some of the other stuff that we mentioned during the podcast. And if we didn't make this clear, this is book one of a series. This is only the beginning of Liliana's journey, right? Yes. In fact, I have already sold City Owl books book two. And I have book three almost complete. So right now I'm doing some final edits on book two, and it should be out probably in November. So Precise Oaths, book one. Liliana and the Fay of Fayetteville. And the second book is currently titled Explosive Chemistry. And we'll see if they decide they have to change the title. Sometimes that happens. <laughs> so read book one as your summer read. And then just in time for the holidays, Get book two. you'll have a great gift book, book two. Yes. So you, I guarantee you, listeners, you you will fall in love with Liliana immediately. She is, I mean, there are other characters in the book, but she is the protagonist. I have to say that almost everyone, everyone loves Liliana. Almost everyone loves Siobhan. And I have to give some credit. She was actually a character that my husband came up with. And she's a fairy character. 
a fae, you know, the the little cute fae that you think of with wings and, and you know, but she absolutely adores customizing weapons. So think of a fairy with a machine gun. <laughs> That's Siobhan. <laughs> and like we had mentioned earlier, again, even, even if you're not typically drawn to this genre, you're going to appreciate the book because it, it, it has well-developed and intriguing characters, especially, again, that amazing protagonist, Liana. You're not going to get bogged down with world building. You're going to have a, an, an engaging, entertaining, well-paced, and well-written story. It's definitely worth your time. It's an enjoyable read. It's about a little over 200 pages long, so it's... Yeah, it's pretty short, and it's and there's lots of action. Yes. It's, it's sort of marketed as paranormal romance, but it's what they call a slow burn. Which means, basically, if you read the whole series, yes, there is a romance arc. But each individual book is more like a little bit of a murder mystery and a lot of action adventure. That's, I think, an important point, too, because I think even a, a few of us who were invited to look at the early release, a few of us raised our eyebrows at paranormal romance. And we were expecting <laughs> perhaps something different. I would have been happy either way, but I found it much more action-packed yes. than I was expecting, which for those of you who might be like, eh, romance ain't my thing. Well, the irony is that I got dinged by at least one reviewer because she was like, but there's no romance in this. <laughs> like, well, it's the first book. Give it some time here, you know? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why the second book's explosive chemistry. <laughs> that's right. Well, it doesn't have anything at all to do with, you know, explosive things that are chemical <laughs> that might be in the book maybe <laughs> i love double entons they're always fun so thank you very much for taking time to talk to us page again congratulations once again on the publication of the novel i am very much looking forward to reading the rest of the series and again since we went off on a couple of comic book tangents and superhero tangents during this episode don't be surprised, listeners, if we have Paige back on again and talk about more of the geeky stuff that we usually talk about on this podcast. Oh, no, don't make me talk about superheroes. Oh, <laughs> no, no, don't twist my arm really hard. Yeah. OK. <laughs> so this has been awesome. Thanks a lot, Paige. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to Fanboy and the Hater. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating. Write a review. Reach out to us on Twitter at FanboyAndHater. Email us at TheFanboyAndTheHater at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on our website, FanboyAndHater.Podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Where you can download the free Podbean mobile app for Android and iOS. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. Once again, thanks for listening to The Fanboy and the Hater. <laughs>